Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 2. And we're going to read down to verse 9. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you unto the land, concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for a heritage. I am the Lord. And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel. But they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit, and for cruel bondage. Last week, we looked at Moses being spoken to from the burning bush. Since that time, Moses has obeyed and returned to Egypt. He's met up with his brother Aaron, who's going to be the main spokesperson. He went to the elders of Israel and gave them and showed them the signs that God had given him to prove that God had spoken to him. That was casting down his rod, it turned into a snake, putting his arm into his shirt and pulling it out to be covered with leprosy. And the third one was to take a little bit of water from the river and pour it out on dry land and it would turn to blood. So, and the people hearkened unto him. They bowed their heads and they worshipped um, because God had said that he had he was visiting them. And so they were probably excited. And then Moses and Aaron went to visit Pharaoh. And they gave him the message to let my people go. And it didn't go so well. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh didn't know the Lord. He didn't know the name Jehovah. Frankly, I don't think he cared. He was upset that Moses had come and had hindered the productivity of his slave population. He had this great and mighty nation who were doing all of his public works, and here they had, they took themselves a holiday as they worshipped and bowed their heads. And so he made their life worse. You needed straw to make the bricks, and normally the Egyptians would provide it, and they'd go make their bricks, and they'd have a certain amount they'd have to make every day. And so Pharaoh says, if you're dreaming about going up and worshiping this God, taking a three-day journey out into the wilderness, uh, you got too much time on your hands. We need to add a little work to you. 
We're going to take away that straw, and you just go find stubble. You know, go out and scrape the fields and try and gather up enough in order to make the same amount of bricks. All right, so your workload got a whole lot more. If you were working a 12-hour day, it's now 16. All right, or 16 hours, now it's 20. I don't know exactly, but it's a lot worse. And they weren't able to keep up. And there were officers put over the people of Israel, the Hebrews uh, who were put over them. And when they had to go report their tallies, they got beaten. They said, why haven't you made your quota? They said, it's y'all's fault. You took away the straw. And they went to complain to Pharaoh. And they said, you know, Pharaoh, you took away the straw. This is your people's fault, not ours. And he snaps at him, you're idle. You're idle. You got too much time on your hands if you got these vain thoughts about going and worshiping your God. And they saw that their strait was bad, that they were in a bad situation. All right? They had already been in a bad situation. They'd been crying out to God by reason of anguish and bondage, and now it's worse. And Pharaoh has now staked out his position. I am not going to give in. This is as far and as obstinate as you can get, and I'm going to make your life so much worse. All right? And then this is uh, after Moses has cast down his rod and it turned into a serpent, and uh, Pharaoh wasn't impressed. He called his magicians, and they did the same thing. They chunked down their sticks. They turned into serpents, and Moses' serpent ate theirs. God still wins. But Pharaoh wasn't impressed, right? And so he had made the edict about straw. And as those elders and officers are coming out from Pharaoh, they bump into Moses. I don't know if he was in the hallway or if he was in the road, but he was in the way outside. And they're mad at him, saying, you've made us to stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. All right? Things are already bad. You just made it worse. It's like you put a sword in his hand so he can kill us. Thanks a lot, Moses. Right? You thought you were going to make things better. And so this, where we read right here, is the conversation that Moses has with the Lord after that. Moses didn't want to come on this trip. He had tried to get out of it. Lord, send somebody else. That sounds like a great idea, Lord. You send whoever else you want other than me. Lord, I don't speak so well. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a real convincing orator. He says, well, I know your brother Aaron speaks well. Send him, right? And yet here he is, and things have not gone smoothly. All right? They've gotten worse, and now the people are mad at him. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of the land. So the Lord said, I have set the stage. Now you're going to see. And here's the end result. This guy who's saying he doesn't know me and he's not going to obey, he's going to be the one that says, Get out. And with a strong hand, he's going to drive them out of his land. He said, that's the extreme I'm going to push him through by what I'm going to do. Now you'll see. And Moses spake unto, and God spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Actually, I'm going to jump down just for the sake of making a point. We're going to jump down to verse 7. It says, I will take you to me if you be a people. I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. Part of this process is going to be God revealing himself. Ye shall know. That ye, he's talking, the audience of this message is the children of Israel. 
all of his people will know that he is the Lord your God, the eternal God. Ye will know. Now if you jump over to chapter 7 and verse 5, Pharaoh, um, he, God is saying he's going to do all these wonders to Pharaoh, multiply his signs and wonders, and Pharaoh's not going to hearken. Down in verse 5 it says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel upon them. So he's not only going to reveal himself to his people, he's going to reveal himself to all the Egyptians. You jump over to chapter 8 and verse 10. Specifically, um, he's going to show Pharaoh, who's being addressed here, tomorrow, um, this is Moses saying, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. So Pharaoh's being talked to, that you, Pharaoh, are going to know that our God, the Lord, the Jehovah God, the eternal God, there's none like him. Who is the Lord that you shall obey him? There's no one else like him. You're going to learn that. And then later over in chapter 9 and verse 14 through 16, say, For at this time I will send all my plagues upon thine heart, again speaking to Pharaoh, and upon thy servants, upon thy people, that thou mayest know there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I might smite thy hand and thy people with the pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. All right, so you get this revealing. It starts from small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. God's people are going to know in this process who's the Lord. The Egyptians are going to know who is the Lord. Pharaoh's going to know who is the Lord, and there's none like him. And the whole earth, his name is going to be declared. Okay, now let's go back to 6 and start back at the beginning. Moses spake unto him, saying, I am the Lord. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known unto them. Now, the word Jehovah will appear frequently in the book of Genesis. Right? So we could get confused and say, well, Abraham never knew the word Jehovah. Well, there's times when he actually spoke the word Jehovah. And so... God's addressing something different here. And that key is in verse 3. I appeared. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. So there were times that God would visibly appear before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is how he introduced himself. So go to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. Abraham, here's just... Abram at this point hasn't had his name changed. He's 99. And the Lord, remember that L-O-R-D, that's Jehovah, appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. How did God introduce himself? The almighty God. All right, almighty. The uh, almighty, the word there is Shaddai. And God is El, which is the shortened um, for Elohim. All right? Almighty. In the New Testament, Almighty would be translated elsewhere as omnipotent, all powerful. All right? Elohim means strength. It's actually the plural form of strengths. Um, strength. But any deity can have that name. All right? So you've got these false idols. They're, 
Elohim or El, all right? Because they're strong. Like the idea that people's gods, what they think are gods, they're supposed to be strong, right? But Almighty, this combination of this is the strongest, right? The most powerful, the highest, the greatest, right? The power of God is in this name. That's what's being focused on is the power of God, the Almighty God. So when he appeared to Abraham, he said, I am the Almighty God, the most powerful God, if you will. All right, Almighty God. Um, if you go down to Genesis 26 and 24, you'd see when he appeared to Isaac, 26, 24, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said that I, the God of Abraham. So here it doesn't mention specifically God Almighty, but you've got again the Elohim. But later when uh, Isaac is blessing his son Jacob, he would reference this event in 28 and verse 3 and said, And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed that thou mayest inherit that land where it's that... Oh, verse 3. And God Almighty bless thee, right? And make thee fruitful and multiply thee. And so I won't go through all of these, but you could see back in Jacob, um, same thing. The Lord appeared to him, and he would describe the name as God Almighty. All right? So, that was how God had introduced himself to the three patriarchs, um, that he was God Almighty, the God. But now he is introducing himself not to individuals, because those were very private, right? God appeared to Abraham. God appeared to Isaac. God appeared to Jacob. Right? This was not a public revealing. Here, he's revealing himself to Moses, but Moses has been given a message. And he is going to reveal himself to be who he says he is through these mighty, mighty works. Delivering the people out and judging Egypt at the same time. And he's, being, he's identifying himself as a, as, by a different name. By my name, the Jehovah God, Jehovah, by my name, Jehovah. So God Almighty, that's, that's kind of the description of him, right? The Almighty God. But here he identifies, my name is Jehovah. Jehovah means, we also translate, I am, I exist, I am. It's focusing on his eternalness, right? This is not like, uh, you know, in the Greek times, they wanted something new. They wanted something different. Everyone wants to see what is what, what? What new things have we heard? And that's why Paul is so interesting. And they're like, "What is he? He's a setter forth of new gods, right? Our God is not new, right? There's no invention of God. There's no ending to God. He is the eternal God, all right? Not only that, that there's an element in this of his completely self-sufficiency. He exists." within himself and outside of creation. You know, uh, many false gods, they would sacrifice to them because their gods needed something, right? Um, when Elijah is picking on those prophets of Baal, remember they were having this contest, you got their, your bull over here and my bull over here, we're not going to put any fire on it. The one that spontaneously combusts, that'll be the god. And he gave them all morning and they're hooping and hollering and they're cutting themselves and Elijah starts picking on him. He says, well, maybe he's asleep. Yell louder, wake him up. Or maybe he's taking a trip. Right? All these very weakness, because that's the idea with it. People put their perception of what are humans like on their God. And we don't need to do that for our God. Our God's bigger than that. Right? 
But He is the eternal God. He is self-sufficient. He does not need us. Right? There's nothing that we can do that adds to God. Right? I am the I am. Right? So, since God had appeared to those patriarchs, right? He appeared to Abraham and Isaac and then lastly to Jacob, there's a period of time in which God doesn't appear. Right? There are five dreams. Joseph has a couple and then he interprets three in which the Lord gives information, but there's nothing recorded in which he appears. And so you have this period where there's that 400 years that have been promised, right? And that's passing and then now you've got God speaking again. That kind of bookends with what happens before the New Testament, right? God has his last prophet, and then there's that period of about 400 years of silence. And then Jesus comes on the scene. So it's this, this silence that's building up to something new, right? So there's a public revealing. God's going to do something. He is going to set a division between his people and his enemies, Right? Those that are his, that he has taken to himself, and those that are not. Those that, that hate him. Right? He is going to mark a division between them. And for his people, he's going to free them. He's going to free them from their bondage. And from his enemies, he's going to judge them and destroy them. All right? So why the delay? Why did God wait this 400 years before pulling them out? Well, back in Genesis... <coughs> Um, I think it's chapter 15, when God was telling Abraham that your children would be in this land for a long period of time, and they're going to come out in the fourth generation. The reason he gave is because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It was not just the judgment on Egypt. It was the judgment on those that possessed Canaan that he was going to bring down, and he was allowing that to fully develop. Why has Christ not returned yet? Because the iniquity of this time is not full yet. Right? We like to think in terms about the last child of God who's been born again, and that'll be the trigger. Maybe. They'll be alive, but when God says the iniquity has reached to fullness, then he will come. Okay? All right, so he's got a promise of a better land. Right? They have established with them a covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them a land of Canaan, the land in which they were pilgrims, wherein they were strangers. So they were, um, there's a difference, right? If you are out in the land and you're just visiting versus that land being given to you, right? The New Testament would describe that word as being ruling, right? We kind of get caught up on ruling and reigning with Christ. Well, somehow we've got to be a king and we've got to be over things. It's freedom, Right? When you're a pilgrim and you're a stranger, you're subject to everyone there. The owners, the civil governments, all that stuff. That's what we're doing now. We're, we're pilgrims and soldiers in our life. But when we're in heaven, it's ruling because there is no one over us but God. right? And he's the perfect master. Right? So that's the ruling, that's the reign, is that the inheritance that's prepared for you, you get to enjoy it fully. You won't be a servant in that land under other people or under wickedness in any way. That's one of the things we're looking forward to. All right? So he has promised them that better land. And I have also heard the groaning. We're down in verse 5. I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I remembered my covenant. And that groaning 
Groaning occurs when you're so pressed down you can't even form words to complain, right? Um, this is not like shrieking with that high pitch, but this is just those guttural, oh, right? right? You ever been around a lady when she was in labor? Right? There's some groaning that goes on, right? I can't discuss the amount of pain that's going on, but I'm being pressed down, right? There is a New Testament concept associated with groaning, and that is yearning to have this sin body, sinful body, covered over, transformed with the new eternal body. That's what's what's described over in Romans 8, 22 and 23, about you're yearning so much and ready for that perfect day that it's like you're you're just you're pressed down at times and your your body is groaning along with all creation. 8 um, 22, Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. That travailing is often used to describe labor pains, right? Travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. You have that indwelling Holy Spirit. Even we also groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. When we die, our souls go to be, to, go to be with heaven. Go to be with the Lord immediately. And our bodies go in the ground. But we're groaning, we're learning, yearning for that day when we are given those perfect bodies. I mean, they're waiting for a deliverance there and they're groaning and we're waiting for a deliverance and our, we're groaning and our whole and really it's all of creation is groaning. Um, it's, it's under this bond of bondage of corruption. The creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's up in verse 21. So there is, there is a bondage that we operate in that's similar to that which is in Egypt where we cannot escape from this until God pulls us out and puts us in that better land where we aren't subject to that anymore. And so that we won't have to groan when we're in heaven. We will be there and all the things that we're looking forward to will be met and met perfectly. All right, so go back to Exodus 6. So he is saying the name that he is going to introduce himself by and it's going to be declared to everybody. He, he knows that he's established his covenant with the patriarchs and he's promised to give him that land. And now he's heard that groaning. And he's remembered his covenant. He's marked out that covenant. He knows, and the time is now right. Wherefore? All right, so because of all that, wherefore? Because of all that, go, Moses, say unto the children of Israel, I want you to hear how this starts and this ends. I am the Lord. But now look at the end of verse 8, the end of what he speaks to him. I am the Lord. The validity of the message is given by who speaks. If you have an unfaithful messenger, right, or you represent somebody that you know is not trustworthy, the message, grains of salt, right? That's a nice way of saying, we don't trust you, right? Can you trust this message? Yes. And he identifies why you can trust this message, because I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. I am the eternal God. I am bigger than all this. I am speaking. You will know who I am. Alright? I am the Lord. So, he's got the authority to do it. He's a sovereign God. He's got the power to do it. He's the almighty God. And he is following up on a covenant that he himself made. They couldn't bind him. No one could force God to do anything. But he made it and he's going to follow up on it. I am the Lord. 
I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. All right, so the original message that Moses was given when he went to speak to the elders and did the signs was, was fairly short. It was back in chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, I have visited you. Or actually, it says, the Lord God, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, appeared unto me, Moses speaking to them, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of all the people there in Canaan. All right? That was it. I've seen you. I've visited you. I've come down, and I will bring you up. All right? So here the message is getting more detailed. All right? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's, that's a good thing. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to rid you out of their bondage. Right? Um, I will rid you out of their bondage. I'll snatch you out from, from the toil that you're under. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. We could spend a great deal of time on the concept of redemption and redeeming. For today we won't, but I will just say that this is only the second time that word's been mentioned um, thus far in Scripture. The first time was back in... Genesis 48, when uh, Jacob is speaking to his uh, children, 48 and 16, he's blessing Joseph, and he says, The angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lad. So he's asking that the Lord's blessing, there was an angel that went with him and that protected him on all his journeys, um, that kept him safe, even though his, uh, his father, uh, father-in-law Laban was just such a unreliable fellow, and he's asking that the Lord which, which redeemed him, the angel which redeemed him from all evil, would bless uh, now Joseph's son. So that's the first uh, mis- message that mention of redemption or redeeming in Scripture. And then you get over here um, in Exodus is the second time. I will redeem. Now this word redeem is interesting. Um, it's kind of a complex word. It, it's got the idea of being able to buy back a family member. Right, you remember the kinsman redeemer? Boaz was Ruth's second nearest kinsman, and he had the right to buy the family land um, and also to marry the widow there. Right? And so if you fell into poverty and you sold yourself out to be a servant for seven years, before that period was up, your brother, your kinsman, redeemer, could go to your master and he could pay off your debt, right? And he could set you free. He had the right because of the relationship, and if he had the means, he could fulfill it, right? So that's one concept here in this redeeming. There's another concept that's a little darker, and that's if you kill my brother, I get to be the avenger of blood, right? If you murder him, I can chase you down, and unless you get to that city of refuge and you did it on accident, you could stay in there, but if I chase you down, I could kill you. And it would be right under the law, right? That's the same word there for redeeming or an avenger, right? And so for God to redeem us, all right, he had the relationship that he made with us. He had the right by relationship to purchase us, to draw us out of that bondage, and he paid a price, a very high price, which was symbolized in the Passover lamb and Jesus Christ, but also to be an avenger. That those, when you've got the uh, the slaying of all those innocents, I mean, that... that 
points to the world slaying the Lord's martyrs, to his children, that the avenger of blood under the altar in Revelation, there are those who are saying, how long, Lord? How long until you avenge us? And so you've got this twofold concept within redemption of him saving and delivering his people and then also a vengeance and vengeance, passing rightful judgment. So there's, it's that combination. They're together. It's a lot more we could say about that. But he says, I will. I will redeem. And listen to that. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will rid you. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. So who's the, who's the actor? God. I will. I will. I will. I will. Right? I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. All right. Um, sometimes when um, foreign countries around the world start acting up, what does our Navy do? They go steam over there and they have a show of force. Right? It's military deterrent. You have enough aircraft carriers and planes over there, then generally somebody will back off and calm down, right? It's a show of force, all right? That's the idea of with a stretched out arm. If God has a mighty arm, the arm represents your power, all right? With mighty force and with great judgments, that's also sentences or inflictions, he is going to, with a great show of force, bring him out. This is not going to be, we're going to get out by the skin of our teeth. This is not sneaking out. This is not, whew, we just barely made it, right? If you or I were dependent on trying to get out of a bad situation, that's probably the best we could hope for. But he's doing it as a display. There's going to be a mighty show of force. He has set the stage so that Pharaoh is going to be as obstinate as humanly possible. And then he's even going to have some supernatural hardening of his heart on top of that to make sure that God gets to demonstrate his full uh, gambit, range of the mighty works that he plans on displaying. It's going to be a stretched out arm. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm, with a mighty show of force and with great Judgments, all right? And that judgment is also sentence, passing sentence or infliction. All right? So we know that piece. That's kind of like step one. I visited you. I'm going to bring you up. I'm going to do that. But then there's this other piece that wasn't included in the original message, right? Verse 7. I will take you to me for people. Any of them send him a postcard and say, Lord, will you, will you make me your people? No. Right? Who's the actor in all this? It's God. God said, I will take you to me. Do you think that God who has that mighty arm and show of force is going to allow anybody who he desires to take to him to get away? No. I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. I will be to you a God. And... Ye shall know that I am the Lord, your God. How am I your God? Because I took you to me. And you're now my people, and I am your God. Right? Which bringeth, which, so because I am, uh, you know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I've said I'm going to do that, and I am. And in that, you'll know that I've taken you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you're going to know it. Right? You shall know that I am the Lord your God. Alright? And, verse 8, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of promises in here. And, I will bring you in unto the land. Alright? Concerning the land which, uh, which, which I swear unto Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm not changing the deal. I promised them a land. They never got to enjoy the benefit of it. Not as owners, right? They died before they got to own it. 
Everyone who'd lived in Egypt to this point, they were entitled to it, right, by inheritance, but they didn't get to enjoy the benefit of it, and that points to something else. But that same land, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you for an inheritance. All right, and that inheritance means a, a possession. You have the right to go in and occupy it. All right? To go in and occupy the land, I am the Lord. All right? That's a good message. Woo! If you were one of those children of Israel, you've been waiting. You'd, you'd heard that a long time ago, ancestor, you know, Father Abraham, he had, he had gotten this promise that he was going to have this land. Time is going to pass. It's going to be there. And, and now it's got to be getting close. And now Moses has come. And things are worse. And so Moses comes with this great message with all these promises about what he's going to do. Not only is he going to bring us out, he's going to get us all out of the bondage, he's going to take us to himself, and he's going to be our God, and we're going to know that he's the Lord, and he's going to take us unto this good land. Wow, because he's the God. How do you react? They didn't listen. <laughs> Any of y'all act that way sometimes? <laughs> We've got great news. Great, precious promises that are true. Is everything he said true? Yes! But what happened? They didn't listen. They did not hearken unto him. Moses spake so unto the children of Israel. He, he delivered the message, but they hearkened not. They didn't listen. They didn't give attention to him. Why? Because for cruel, for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. The anguish, um, anguish of spirit, the idea there is as a a shortness of spirit, impatience, and that cruel bondage. That's that's the the just tough, the work of all kinds. They're just beaten down because their lives were bad, and now it sounded like they they thought it was about to get a whole lot better real fast, and now they run out of patience, and we ain't got time for that. I got to be out in the field getting this stubble, otherwise I'm going to get whooped again tomorrow, right? The cares of this world, the trials and the tribulations and the struggle had completely consumed their thoughts, their vision. That's what they're focusing on. And so now they're hearing the truth of these precious promises that God's coming down. He's taking you to be his people. He's going to bring you to a good land. And they say, we ain't got time for that. That's sad. It's easy to kind of look down on, oh, if y'all just knew what was about to happen, you'd be so happy. All those that are hurting you are about to have the Lord come down. But they couldn't see. At least not at that point. Right? Are there times when we don't listen to God's promises? Yeah! Is it really close to this scenario? Yes! Has Christ promised that he's coming back? Yes, has he promised us a great land that where he's at, we're going to be with him? Is it far better than the natural land of Israel? I mean, natural Israel, that's very nice. It's a fertile land. Things grow there. You get rain. You have milk and honey, right? The description of just material wealth. That's nice. But there's still sin, curse, problems. That's, that's far inferior to the land that we're promised. And the bodies that we're promised, right, that we're groaning for, these are all precious promises. Is the speaker of those promises worthy of being trusted? Yes. yes. 
But Monday comes. And we get the mully grubs. And the frustrations. And the worry about cares and finances and health and all the things that are going on right now. And just feel like, I, that's great in theory, but I'm worried about making this brick. All right, I got to go find my straw. Who took my straw? <laughs> Lord, if you just give me some straw, I'd be better today. And that's what our prayers so often are. Lord, can I have a little more straw? <laughs> Please. Make this brick dry a little faster. Oh, it's silly. Is it? I think it's a really good analogy. <laughs> that all of our toils in this world, does it really amount to anything more than making bricks? <laughs> right? The only really thing we do of value is when we're not focused on the bricks and we are considering the promises and we're looking at the promise maker and we're worshiping him and we're serving him and we're going about his business. It's a lot more valuable than bricks. Right? Now we're also described as being living stones, so you figure it out that way. Right? Build it together into a holy temple where we're worshiping together and he's within us as the indwelling Holy Spirit. Right? That's some profitable stone work. Right? Now Moses, he's going to get discouraged too. Because after he's gone and faithfully delivered this message and the people didn't listen to him, who's God tell him to go talk to next? Pharaoh! Moses is not really looking forward to this interview. Right? He says, Go speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of the land. And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, look at here, the children of Israel have not hearkened to me. You know, the ones that you gave all these promises to, they're going to be your children, the one that you love. They're going to, you're going to take them out. You're going to give them a good land. They didn't listen to me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? He's, he's saying, I'm not eloquent. Clearly, I'm not a convincing orator. If I can't convince these folks of all the good news, how am I going to convince this guy to do something that clearly he has no desire to do? Right? So Moses was in a, uh, a tough spot. Right? So we can talk more uh, later about as he goes further in this process and the, the plagues start coming down. But I want to think for a little bit um, about this concept about the Lord revealing himself. Okay, He's revealed privately to the patriarchs. And now he's telling his name publicly and it's going to go and it's going to be throughout the world right think about that in terms of the new testament that the hint of the messiah was there there was promises of it and they were small and they were subtle and they were pointing to something and then when but it was all it was all really secret right paul would describe that as being the mystery a secret that was hidden then from before the foundation of the world and is now being revealed Right? And they'll be fully revealed at the writing of the New Testament. But even when Jesus was here, it was obscure. Right? He'd have people walking along with him. Are you the Christ? And most of the time, he wouldn't give them a straight answer. And if they happen to say the right answer, he might say, Thou sayest, now hush. Right? So that which was hidden is slowly becoming, becoming more plain. First to his disciples, right? He revealed it privately. Now's not the time. And then after his ascension, you know, you've got, they're going around, they're spreading. 
And Paul's going around and he's, he's telling to the Gentiles, it's getting there, the world is knowing the name of Jesus Christ. And we're learning that this is not just any other name. This is a name that God has set higher than all other names. Now, is that name held in the highest regard yet? No! You, you, you listen to almost anything on TV, and what is their favorite swear word, right? I stub my toe. I'm going to call out the name that's higher than any other name. Now, when the Lord does all that He's going to do to spiritual Egypt, this world, is everybody going to know the name of Jesus? You better believe it, and they're going to know it in context. With power and with might and a strong arm will he reveal himself. Not only his people will know abundantly, but his enemies will know. The whole world will know. The kings, Pharaoh, you'll know there's none like this. You think you're a king. All right, you gather up all your forces. You try and battle against King Jesus. Good luck. Right? Revelation, he has a title on his... Uh, leg i think it's it's, yeah. it's king of kings that means the king of kings oh you think you're a king that's fine you're down here in the pecking order this is the king of all kings right lord of all lords oh you're a lord okay well that's nice you got some people underneath it. he is over that right that is who we report to that is who's coming back that is the speaker and this is the one that the lord has put all things under his feet right are we a, well, let's, let's be honest, are we a small and relatively insignificant portion of the population sitting here? Yes, we are. Are we the smartest, the prettiest, or richest? No, right? But do you know who the head of this church is? King Jesus. The king of all kings. That's directly who we report to. Does what we do here have value? As long as we're worshiping King Jesus and I'm pointing you to him, then yes, there is high value. All right? This is worth it because he's worth it. That, if, any, if you don't learn anything else from today, that's who we report to, the king of all kings, who has a name that's higher than every other name. And so throughout, you know, this is a revealing, kind of like the unfolding of a flower. There's, there's some things that God is showing about himself and the culmination is going to be the showing of Jesus in all his glory. That's why we can truthfully say, come quickly. Lord, we're groaning for it. We're looking forward to it. It's, it's going to be great. All of our mud pies here below are going to be paled. There's nothing in comparison. Right? That's what we're looking forward to. And this is that same God who told the Israels, I will take you to me for a people. He took a people for himself. It was hidden at the beginning, and it's revealed that all of his children, he chose. He took them to himself. They didn't volunteer. You was drafted, right? And you were given a desire in the new birth to want to serve him, and that's beautiful. He has become your God. He is the God, but he's also your God because of him taking you to himself. That's special. Don't overlook that, right? There are many people who have a concept of a God. And often he's a distorted caricature and kind of looks like them. Because you think, what would I do, right? And we know that the wrath of God is revealed from creation itself. You read that in Romans 1, right? But how is the righteousness of God revealed? 
revealed from faith to faith. He gives you faith in that new birth, and you get to learn about the righteousness of God, that indwelling Holy Spirit, that Jesus dwelling within. That's the idea, is that you get to learn from God Himself about His righteousness. That you can't observe that from creation by itself. Creation, you can learn about His wrath. And creation will experience His wrath. His whole universe that He's created is going to be put away. All right, y'all ever had uh, little kid clothes that are the wrong size? They're now worn out. They got holes. Well, you, if you don't chunk them, you just fold them and put them away, right? That's the idea of folding up the vesture and putting it away. It's this time for this is over, all right? The difference between, you know, the, the skin of a caterpillar versus a butterfly. Same critter, right? One's radically different. Well, we're, we're living in caterpillar time, all right? And there's a new heaven and new earth. It's going to be infinitely better. Can I describe it to you in adequate terms? Nope. I'm looking forward to it. We can experience it together. But that's the promises that we receive. That's what we... I mean, we're not just here for our health, folks. <laughs> right? If we wanted to get together and just have a mully grub session about how bad things are, I mean, we could do that anywhere. We're not here to focus on here. We're here to support each other through it and to beseech the Lord on each other's behalf. Yeah, if that's a necessary part of it. That's great. It's part of the way God designed His church. But the real thing that we do here is we come and we take aside from our mud pie activities and we look to the Creator, our God, and focus on His Son who He's revealed to us as the Lord, the King of Kings. And we worship Him. And we, we redirect our hearts towards serving Him. And then we go from this place and we keep serving Him. Right? Until one day, He's promised He's going to come. What a day that will be. Ooh-wee. <laughs> Thank y'all for your time and attention. <laughs>